March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Nick Licata. Did I pronounce that correctly? Uh, excellent. Great. Yep, you got it right. Excellent. Perfect. All right. So thanks a lot for joining me today. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM KVSH. And if you've got friends out of the region who you'd like to share the show with, they can check it out 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org or my personal website, marchtwisdale.com. Nick, how about you start us off by telling us real briefly a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Well, um, most recently... I was a Seattle City Council member. I was elected to five terms, and I served from 1998 to the end of 2015. And before that, I had been actually an insurance broker, but also had been a freelance citizen activist for many, many years. I started back in college, and I just continued to do everything from helping organize 24-hour dance marathons to stop the nuclear arms race to uh, you know, protesting banks redlining neighborhoods. So I've always been engaged. Just as I was uh, leaving city council with a book called uh, Becoming a Citizen Activist. Mm-hmm. And part of it was um, self-reflective. I was asking myself, why is it that I'm engaged in so many things and what were the steps that I sort of went through to enjoy actually the political process and, and wanting to engage in our democracy so that I was, I suppose, feeling I was alive and, and, and creating a, a better world. And so I, I wrote that and been sharing it with others since then. Right, right, right. Okie doke. So I'm sitting here looking at your book, which very, very, um, how do I put it, accessible book. So this book is about five inches by six and a half inches, folks. And it's just, it feels like a little tiny handbook. And yet you pop it open and there's just a lot of rich information. Doesn't feel like a dense read at all. So I think you did a great job with this, Nick. I like it. Well, thank you very much. I, as always, owe thanks to the many people who gave me feedback on it, including my editor at Sasquatch Books. I love Sasquatch. They do a good job. Okay, so every citizen has the power to affect change, which we're all told this, right? Like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But is the big giant in caps word that comes next in most people's heads. And you're saying here, but it takes skill, an understanding Mm -hmm. of power, and a bit of passion Mm -hmm. to meaningfully participate in a democracy. And then you say this is the playbook for citizens wanting to improve the world around them. This is awesome. So how about we give my listeners a chance to um, start imagining how they can become more effective in their engagement? Sure. be glad to do that. you want me just to jump in, sort of, or well, I'm thinking, and, and talk uh, a little bit about... Yeah, go ahead. Well, you pretty much said it takes skill and understanding of power and a bit of passion. Um, yes. Why don't we play along with those? Like, what type of um, understanding of power in particular... Given what's going on in 2017 right now, that sure. almost seems like it's a changing landscape. Well, it, it, it definitely is a changing landscape, uh, very dramatic, in, in my opinion, not for the better of, of the, the general population. Let me just back up and say mm-hmm. that I think until recently, uh, with, with Trump's election, a lot of us, and I include myself, 
we tend to go along with what the status quo is and we tend to grumble or complain and we think about things we want to change, but rarely do we you know, devote the time and, and the skill necessary to uh, learn what's going on and make those changes. And I think one of the major reasons we hesitate in doing that is uh, we have our own lives. And the other is it's hard to focus on what it is actually. Where do we pull, where do, where's the lever? Where's the lever we pull on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people are going through that right now, particularly since um, the concern is that with the Trump administration and what appears to be a removal of, let's say, in the environmental areas, environmental protections for uh, you know, streams and rivers and things of that sort, or maybe a pulling back as well uh, in just the civil rights area. So there's, there is a sense that things that we have perhaps taken for granted and, and in many cases perhaps thought wasn't being done well enough, now we're, we're actually faced with a very surprising situation for many folks that actually those things that weren't working perfectly may be taken away entirely. And I think it's a very shocking sort of uh, period to go through. So I think well, right but, now... But I do want to dive in there and say that that... <clears throat> how do I put this? That impression that yeah. um, you said, you know, things were not going perfectly, but maybe we were, quote, going in the right direction, or, or that's the sense yeah. I'm getting. Um, yeah. I think what we need to probably do is um, keep in mind the problems we're facing right now did not start mm-hmm. right now. We are the result of what's been going on. And so I want to just be fair to all of my listeners out there that um, over the last eight years, there were definitely some things that were – if we went into details, we would be able to find a bunch of detailed things that really were not being done well during the Obama administration either. And prior to that, the Bush and the Clinton. And, you know, honestly, there's always been detail problems. So I think the, the real question I have, because I don't want to focus just on um, what this administration is doing, I think the, the real question is, how are we going to understand the sources of power that are available to us as citizens, regardless of which administration happens to be currently in the Oval Office? Absolutely. That's so absolutely. And I fact, want to make sure we the, focus on those levers totally. and less yeah. on the administration. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I mentioned administration because, as you said in your lead-in, mm-hmm. 2017 is, yeah. is a shock year in some ways. But, you know, when I talked about that, I'm thinking about many of my friends who are, I would say, fall into the camp of, of being in shock. But you're absolutely right. The, the changes that this country has been going on is – been going on for unfortunately a long time mm-hmm. i was just at um i mentioned yesterday and they're pointing out that for instance the people who are boomers now who are 25 years old um actually had there were more college graduates then than there are now if you look at the last 25 years the average expendable income has gone down for middle class families of oh, yeah. all ethnic groups yeah um the the loss of jobs is real. Mm-hmm. The causes are being debated. Certainly, people will point at trade agreements, but also automation. So our society is 
seeing, our country is seeing a tremendous amount of, unfortunately, shifting of wealth. We know that's been measured quite well. But also our comfort level, everything from education to income to family stability has been impacted. So I think that there has been a lot of, of discontent and people uh, are noticing it and want something done. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I point out is that you need to have a sense of where to begin. And I always say you begin where you have the most interest in. It's not for me or someone else to tell you this is the cause you should jump into or this is the thing you should be interested in. Each one of us has to look at what is it about our physical or political or social environment that concerns us and what is it that we'd like to see done. So that's the first step. The second is who else is interested in making those changes? Because you cannot do it alone. That's right. one of the biggest hurdles we have is that, oh, I'm here alone. We, you know, I would say a newspaper, that name, but read you know, the Internet, watch TV, see who are the individuals, but also the groups out there doing something. The Internet's great for that. You can mm-hmm. just Google an issue and find out what groups are engaged. And that I've seen from example after example of when someone's interested in doing something or a small group is interested in doing something, the first most successful step is to find out who else is interested because you may find out, and they usually do, that other groups have more resources. They've already done some research in this area. Um, Well, that seems to tie into actually your point one and point two on that wonderful little blurb on the back. You're talking mm -hmm. about how it takes skill and a bit of passion. I've been involved in activism a lot. I've done a few things on my own, but usually I either have like a close partner or I'm part of a group or I'm even mm-hmm. leading a group of people who I've invited to join me in something. You're right. It's like who has the skills? You get eight people in a room and you find out that person's really good at, you know, Internet design and that person's great at going out and putting up posters and talking to people face to face, blah, blah, blah. And then the passion piece One of the things that I think is going on right now, and I'm going to check and see if you agree, is that there's a big piece of overwhelm out there. Mm -hmm. And when people are trying to, when people are encouraged, you know, pick something you care about, I think for a lot of people, the first feeling is, but if I pick that, these other nine things I care about, I'm not helping them. And so some people feel like they have to try to do it all, which of course we can't. So I think um, I've noticed people who seem to be the most consistently effective as um, activists, is mm-hmm. a person who can say, I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to let go of all those other things and trust that other people who care about those things are going to take them on and I'm going to not worry about it and I'm going to focus over here. And I find that that also seems to create a bit more of mental and physical health. Your stress level might go down because what you're focusing on is what you're also taking action on. And it seems to me for a lot of people that are taking in information, they're consuming information that's stressful, if they don't turn around and do something with it, it's just a big, giant adrenaline rush, and it makes you sick, basically. Focus is important, and also, to a certain extent, letting go, knowing that you're not going to individually change the entire world. I know, right? Um, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we love to? I mean, really? Come on, right. is that on page like 83 here in, in small script, how to actually change the entire world all by myself? 
<laughs> I need that. Li- I need that. Yeah. Well, many of us have that passion to do it, but the other element that we need mm-hmm. uh, that I've, I, what I've seen in other people have who are successful is um, persistence and pers- joyful persistence, I guess I would say, because mm. just uh, if we just say persistence thing, oh yeah, it's like work. You got to go to work every day. Right. But it, if you enjoy the dialogue, if you enjoy the path you're on, that's the thing I, I, I try to uh, right. talk about and emphasize. Right. And that's why I also talk about it's not just politics per se. It's also society. It's culture. You right. have to celebrate what you're doing. The most successful movements, I think, are ones that literally not just making the world better, but celebrating every step you make along the path mm-hmm. to make it better and to celebrate those victories. Sometimes we tend to think that it's going to be tomorrow or we're going to have an overnight success. It took four years in Washington State to do two major things in which Washington State became the first or second state to do in the entire nation. Mm-hmm. One was the legalized recreational marijuana right. and the other was the legalized uh, gay marriages. Right. And they were four decade long areas. There were divisions amongst the people who were working on it. But I have found that during that entire period, there were always celebrations. Everything from Hemp Fest, which was for people who don't know, a celebration of, of basically cannabis. It was mm-hmm. legal, it was open, very peaceful. Police officers who I've talked to often said that was one of the more well-mannered, respectful groups they've ever been in charge of looking over. Right. And they started literally with maybe a thousand people celebrating one summer, and now they have over two hundred thousand for a weekend. Yeah, and yeah. it's still going forward. And the same thing with the gay pride parade. When that first started, the mayor who proposed it was almost recalled um, from people who thought was was horrible. You shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And now again, we're close to two hundred thousand people who show up. And watch the Gay Pride Parade in Seattle. Right. But if you had said in the beginning that was going to happen, no one would have believed you in either mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. But throughout that four decades, people will come and go. But they understand that they are part of something larger. And they have celebrations every year or more often. They understand that they are a growing community. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so let's see, May of 2015. Yes, I... Um, you know, learned that Bernie Sanders was going to be, um, he announced his candidacy. And um, and so I got involved with the people on the island and, and started some cool things happening. And they had ideas and we started doing stuff. And one of the things that came out of that was the idea that we need engagement to be a part of our normal life. I think that ties in with that culture piece you're talking about. We just wanted Mm -hmm. to make it sustainable, normal part of life. So we had a holiday party in December and um, it was holiday party first, but it was also a theme of Bernie Sanders and it was the most fun party I went to. And it was just, it was like all fun. It was brilliant. And we were all like, yeah, we need to allow, um, a portion of what's going on with our government, which is only ours if we embrace it as ours, to be right. pulled into our normative life and be a pleasure. So when it comes to culture, I notice on chapter 10, you talk about right. that's titled Disrupt the Culture. So why don't mm-hmm. you touch a little bit on that? Well, obviously, 
every society has culture. We grow up with culture, and part of our culture, part of our psychology, is you tend to accept what was given to you, which is fine. It makes for a stable society, but it can also be something that ossifies because society is continually changing. Culture is continually being challenged by technology often or by just the movement of people. It's been happening for millenniums. Right. And so one of the strengths of a society's culture is to be able to adopt. I mean, I think that's some of the struggle we're going through right now in the country is, is we're trying to define the speed at which we adopt. And what I argue is that as we tend to think of culture as art and literature and music and dance and things of that sort, mm. those are all really important to sustain and see grow because in little ways they open up people's minds to look at something differently that you would not necessarily have thought about looking at differently. It's not right. political in the sense to go out and write a political poem or go out, go out and sing a political song, but just experiencing different kinds of poetry, different kinds of literature, different kinds of music, you realize that not everything has to be, first of all, the same. Mm -hmm. There can be variation. And it's more easy sometimes to accept variation in culture than it is in other realms. But once you begin to realize that experiencing different kinds of cultural experiences is not harmful, but in fact be joyful, mm -hmm. then you begin to begin to see, oh, I can tolerate or enjoy other people's culture that I have something to, to gain from. You know, I, I love that you put um, some significant time into this in your book and that, I, that you're bringing this up because I, like, I've always thought that what we really needed was like every single junior in um, the country to be automatically, you know, offered the opportunity to do, um, you know, travel to another country and spend a year abroad. Uh -huh. I mean, because yeah. when you only are in America, it is so hard to see America clearly because you haven't gotten out of the box at all. You know, I, I want to say that even within our own sort of communities, even not crossing communities, it's important to think that um, to re recognize that there's exploration that can take place. One of the things that I, I, I did in the city council for 18 years is that each council member, there's nine of us, have our own what we call standing committee. And our, you know we define what area that we're going to oversee in the city. And we combine different topics. I was able to uh, focus on culture and art for the 18 years I was there due to the uh, willingness of my colleagues on the council to let me continue in that area. And what I did was I began every of my committee meetings, which would be twice a month, with um, no more than a three-minute poetry reading by a local poet. Right. And we actually uh, hired a curator, because I wouldn't do it, and I wouldn't read my own poetry, mm -hmm. someone who, uh, out of my own office budget, not very much, but still someone who was a local well-known poet would choose other poets. So we had usually two curators a year. Mm -hmm. Each poet came in, received a little honorarium. And um, from that experience, I think we've had well over like 140 poets read. Um, we helped actually create a, a network of poets who said, oh, yeah, I read at City Hall. It was really interesting. And then, of course, we videotaped them. And so more people get to experience it. So it was a way of literally inexpensive way of sharing culture in a way that was exposing the people that might not have thought about it being exposed in that way. Yeah, no, I read about that. And but I am watching the clock and we are getting to the point where we're going to need to sort of shift 
directions a little bit. So, sure. but of course this always happens. So this book is obviously full of a lot more than we can cover in just one show. Folks, it's called Becoming a Citizen Activist. Now, it's stories, strategies, and covered by a rental textbook sticker. So what does the rest of the, the subtitle oh. say? <laughs> well, the rest of the, that's funny. No, uh, and advice for changing our world. And it, Okay, great. Thank you so much. Okie doke. So um, let's see here. I am going to remind those folks who are just joining us that you are listening to myself, March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And today I'm having a great time talking with Nick Licata. Now, Nick, um, how many years did you spend in the city council again here in Seattle? 18. 18 years. Okay, great. Before we return to the interview, though, I'd like to give a quick shout out to um, a couple of folks on the island or organizations that are making it possible for Voice of Ashon to be here on your radio station. Support for this program comes from Northwest School of Animal Massage. NWSAM has something for every animal lover. Workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage for professional certification or to take special care of beloved pets. More information at nwsam.com. Also, support comes from Amiad and Associates. Looking for a green realtor? Emma Amiad is a certified eco-broker with over 25 years' experience selling real estate on Vashon Island. So look her up. We're going to change directions just a little bit. And um, how about we talk about positive messaging? I mean, Mm -hmm. gosh golly, it really feels different when you're consuming positive or negative messaging and it also feels different when you're creating positive or negative messaging and what are your thoughts on the value of positivity well i think the first step to positivity or delivering a positive message is making sure that someone can hear it so what you want to do i think the first step is to to listen to who you wish to deliver your message to, whether it's a community or an individual, to understand where they're coming from. Um, because, you know, you've heard of, um, we've all experienced positive lectures, but people don't like being lectured. So you can sort of talk about good things, but if they feel it's just a lecture and they're not participating in it, they're still not going to necessarily respond positively. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to deliver your positive, how you deliver your positive message is supposedly just being positive. It's to look at what are the, the bridges that exist conceptually or emotionally or socially or something mm-hmm. that allows someone to open up their, their mental horizons to, to look at the information you're providing or the message you're providing in a way that says, Oh, okay. I will, I will give this consideration. And that's usually where I begin. It says, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. Right. I'm asking you to consider whether it's something of value to you. That is the ultimate question. How do you invite a very busy legislator to actually consider information that they know as you come to them is going to mm-hmm. contradict an existing um, belief that they have? How, how do you possibly do that? Well, it's hard. <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> um, there will be people who will not 
uh, change their mind, whether the politicians or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who, no matter how much information you give them, will see those facts as um, not either real or of having value. This is the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to use military terms, but you know, you're in a battle to mm-hmm. try to get the majority of some group to agree with what you're saying. Okay, there will be hardcore people who will never even be open to listening to what you have to say. So I usually don't even address those folks because mm-hmm. I, re- you know, basically I respect where they're coming from, and they're not going to change their mind. And yeah, I'm, and I only have so much energy and time. Mm-hmm. So and there's going to be your core and i usually don't deal a whole lot with core other than uh, providing advice on how to go forward there's what we call the middle middle and the middle actually are people on both sides but are not strong believers that's what we tend to forget these are the people who go back and forth they're not necessarily directly in the middle in fact there's some people in the middle who you won't be able to because they can never make up their mind so you're looking at people who are what i'd say open-minded opposed open-minded in favor and those people undecided and for right. those folks, what you what you want to do is that's where you want to focus your energy on, mm-hmm. I think. And you focus it in a way that, again, addresses what their interests are, understanding what, you know. And often you can tell what their interests are by reading and looking at the local media, what is playing up big, what is grabbing their attention right now. And you write on what's grabbing people's attention and tying your issue to it. So this way it's relevant. Right, um, we, right. We don't use that often. Well, that I love that point. It's interesting because I was at the Women's March in D.C. I took my mm-hmm. 15-year-old son, and we went to visit oh, my granddad. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. it was fascinating uh-huh. because there was um, a mantra, a very strong mantra at the Women's March, which was, um, we will not go back. And mm-hmm. I, I want to be really clear. The Women's March there had about 500,000 people and the signage mm-hmm. was covering many, many different subjects. And I don't actually feel from having been there, walked, talk, see, you know, experiencing it, I'm pretty confident that the speakers who were televised were not at all representing the full breadth of the people who actually showed uh-huh. up for the march. Uh-huh. The march was better than the speakers is what I'm trying to say. The people were brilliant. Uh-huh. Right. But the one thing that I did pick up on that seemed to hold a lot of weight was we will not go back. And right. so there's this other issue that I've been lobbying on in Olympia, and it's the same mm-hmm. thing. Um, there's, there's a push right now to go backwards I think I sort of did what you said, and it didn't even really occur to me until you just mentioned it, is that I've been reaching out to our representatives and saying, look, just like this group over here that's getting a lot of national attention is saying we will not go back, and and you're supportive of this, well, this Mm -hmm. little small group over here that doesn't get a lot of national attention, this group is based or grounded in the same issue. We cannot go back. Look at how bad it was in the last century before right. this issue was fixed. And now you're trying to pull us back to where we were. So mm-hmm. that has actually caught some people's attention because I start off talking about what I know they already feel good about. We will not go back yeah. on the women's issues. And then I say, well, right. fundamentally, that is based in liberty, which is freedom from government intrusion in your life. And over yeah. here, this issue is based in liberty exactly the same way. And mm-hmm. so can you be consistent? Yeah. Well, you're not always going to have success, but the thing I know. is you're trying and you're getting some <laughs> success, which is really important. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you use those terms liberty and freedom because I think 
that is one of the things I've noticed. You know, again, you deal with the political spectrum, and it's not exactly a real spectrum because right. people may be liberal on something and conservative on another. Uh-huh. But overall, using general generalities, that the the folks that are generally more conservative tend to use liberty and freedom as uh, key words more often than the folks on the other side of the spectrum. They tend to use uh, social justice and, and uh, equality. Mm-hmm. They are all valuable. And what we're sometimes doing is we're not using freedom and uh, freedom and liberty to show how that is critical for getting social justice. Thank you. And- <laughs> yes. Okay, I'll be quiet. Go on. <laughs> yes. But anyhow, I you know I actually like uh, visiting other groups to listen to what they have to say. There's a national group called ALEC. Uh, oh. American, American Legislative Exchange, and uh, very conservative. It's yeah. you know, financed heavily by the oil industry and Koch brothers and things. Mm-hmm. But I went twice uh, because I was elected. And this is the funny thing is I went, and a number of people asked me, well, how did you get in? I said, you know, any elected could get in. It's a 501c3. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you do is, is show up. You pay your entry fee, $50. But it allowed me to meet with all kinds of people I would never have had an opportunity right. to meet one-on-one and really understand the discussions because I didn't go there to argue. or right. I, I went there to learn, to right. listen, and then share when they asked me to share because they obviously Googled me and I, I, I got to meet a number of them on that basis. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting is that they're not all of one like mine. And mm-hmm. that's the thing I always tell folks. We, we being whatever group you're in, always tend to view as the opposition as I hope we were as united as they are, you know, because mm. really got their, they, they've got to stuff together and we don't. And when you go there, you realize, no, they have just as many problems as you do. They have just as many divisions. And so it breaks down the stereotyping that everybody on one side of the line is of one belief or another. Unfortunately, those lines are becoming thicker and we are, I think, drifting to extremes. But those are just the hardcore. There's the vast majority of people are still, I would say, in the middle and are open-minded and willing to look at a number of things. And our goal is to be able to explain it and be able to show how it is in their benefit to move forward and make sure that we have a democracy that is working and is protecting everyone. You know, I, I really couldn't agree more. Uh, media does a really good job intentionally of promoting the 2% on either end of the bell curve. Those mm-hmm. two percenters on the far left, those two percenters on the far right, mm-hmm. we're going to give them mm-hmm. 98% of the media coverage. And then everyone who's in the fat, giant, rich middle of our country when it comes to every wedge issue you can bring up, abortion, gun rights, doesn't matter what it is, most people who know how to balance a checkbook, pay their bills, and have a normal middle-class working life, those people understand balance. And they understand mm-hmm. that things are not black and white usually. And I think a lot of times their opinions are in the middle. And mm-hmm. yet media ignores the middle because they don't want us to see each other as allies and to actually come together and unite. We are definitely more easy to manipulate when we're separated and fighting each other. And and I'm sitting around thinking, I'm that person in the middle with friends on mm-hmm. every area of the spectrum. And I ha- and these people are amazing and have great ideas. And I'm trying to figure out how I can 
I don't know. How do we get people to stop self-dividing? Well, um, that is a major, major conundrum that we're having. But your little book's going to solve it, right? No. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's sort of funny in some ways. The the way to make what I would say is fair, equitable, and, and relevant change is in some ways very simple, uh, and that and, and, and involves very simple little steps. And we sometimes, all of us, on whatever part of the political spectrum we are, we want to get where we are, where we want to go, really fast, mm. and we don't realize that people don't change their minds really fast. Mm-mm. And um, and so, you know, the simple steps are just, you know, like I said, just slow it down a little bit. Just listen mm-hmm. to what people are saying and then engage where they are. And then do have your facts. That's important. And oh, yeah. share them. But see what their facts are. You know, and I also want to just jump in for a second and talk about the media because I don't think the media has – because first of all, I don't think the media – is is unified itself you know it's very diverse and so i don't think there's an overarching intent to whether you call it big fake news or stimulate uh, you know um, differences or highlight differences i think what we see is with with media um and all kinds of media is basically they're they're human beings fascinated like we all are unfortunately by disaster sometimes, you know? I mean, disaster movies are big money, but also it's the phenomena of the car wreck on the street on, on, on the freeway. Everyone slows down to see what happens, you know? And what happens with, I think, politics often is that as uh, perhaps, I wouldn't be surprised if more Democrats are watching Trump right now than Republicans because people are fascinated by what is going to happen. Right. And I think media picks up on that. And they basically say, oh, look, we spike up if we cover, and unfortunately, like you said, the 2% on either side, because we're drawn sometimes to that sort of like, I can't believe it, you know, is this actually happening? Um, But it does take more discipline on the media's part to recognize that it's also part of, I would say, their ethical obligation to be able to take some time and explain the nuances that are going on. And some <laughs> right. some news industries do that. Unfortunately, and this is where I think it, what's happened, is that so many of our news outlets have become corporatized. In other words, in the sense that they're looking at the bottom line, that it costs more money to produce more in-depth, balanced news than it does to take a picture of a, a street, a car wreck. Right. Well, so I mean, sometimes... I, when it comes to local news um, and they're, you know, it's this half an hour of, you know, who died here and who died there. And they completely yeah. ignore the like there's this magazine on it. It's produced on Bainbridge Island. It's called Yes Magazine. And very, very, yeah, very right. You know yeah. what I'm talking about. So here's a magazine yeah. that's focused on all the incredibly positive, great things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And ever hear about that on your evening news. So no. so there's that. And then on a national level, you know, there's some hurricanes somewhere and everyone's talking about. But but let's get real here, because I'm looking at this on the on um on the Internet. I believe it's um Time Warner, Disney, CBS, Clear Channel, Comcast, News Corp and Viacom. Those corporate conglomerates own almost everything. So you've got right. seven entities outlets. that own almost mm-hmm. all media outlets in the country. 
And Mm -hmm. there, for example, during the Gulf oil spill, one of the things that they knew was that Americans do not respond well if they see turtles being hurt or dolphins Mm. or whales. And so there was a news blackout, a media blackout on any images of those animals that were dying because of the Gulf oil spill. What you were allowed to show images of, birds, because everyone has seen pelicans and other birds covered in goop. So what did we see for like five months in a row? We saw this oil-covered pelican over and over and over again. Right, Um, pelican. A boat of... um, Journalists from Australia came up into those waters, started taking pictures of what was happening to the whales and the dolphins and the other animals. Uh-huh. It uh-huh. got their stuff confiscated, got kicked out of, of the area. You know, wow. no one who did any work during the Gulf yeah. oil spill was allowed to take a camera with them. They did, they like practically strip searched you when you were going out to wow. work. And wow. um, what were they doing to the turtles when they were gathering up animals that were dying? They literally were gathering them up and uh-huh. burning them to get rid of them. Wow. So that is an example. Yeah. yeah and mm-hmm. yet no photos. It's just like the Iraqi war when Bush said, mm-hmm. we're not going to have pictures of coffins coming home with American flags draped across them. Cause right. during Vietnam right. that upset the American public. Yeah. Well, there's, so there's, we do have intentionality happening. A, a, a cultural, uh, uh, not bias, but almost like a straitjacket that they have all, felt like they don't want to offend anyone so they don't do anything and it serves their interest too because right. they're afraid that if people are too upset they're not going to watch their channel so or we won't support what's going on in the government we won't support right. government decisions right right so i think um that's it's it's it is very interesting to see how this those two percents those extreme perspectives get talked about a lot and the middle ground conversations are absent. Mm-hmm. They they're still there, but they're hard to find. Yes, that's the problem. Yes, you know, and yeah. and that's where that's where the the I would say the work, but also the the enjoyment of of looking uh, looking up <laughs> information and dispersing it. One of the things that I've been trying to do actually on my Facebook page is trying to find articles that are more in depth and something that. Is not picking on personalities, but providing yeah. information. Yeah. And just saying, this is something you might be interested in. Take a look at it. See what yeah. you think. Oh, right. So let, I want to make sure. And um, so for folks who are just joining us right now, um, we're, a little, we're a little bit more than halfway through the show. My name's March Twisdale. You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose on 101.9 FM KVSH. And I am interviewing Nick Licata, who is the author of, well, now, okay, Nick's done a lot, but one of the books we've been focusing on is Becoming a Citizen Activist. So I want to go ahead and maybe if you like this idea, we could devote the rest of the show um, to some ideas. Even though we're based in the Seattle area, what you can do here in Seattle, a person can do in Chicago, a person can do in, you know, any city. And I know there's a bunch of cities right now who, in response to the Dakota Access Pipeline issue, have been doing this thing that a lot of people don't understand, which is divesting from these large banks that are funding the Dakota Access Pipeline. Can you, um, one, explain a little bit about what are what power do cities or counties 
have, let's stick with cities maybe, what type of power do cities have to be influential players? A lot of times people think, oh, every four years I got to pick a good president. But in the meantime, there's all this stuff happening at the city level. And a person who's concerned about the country might feel that the city level is too small, that it's just the city. But these divestments are an example of cities having a national or trying to have a national impact. Give us some thoughts on that. Sure. Actually, I, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but I'm actually working with a, a group now uh, in the Seattle uh, area to trying to start a national city-initiated uh, effort to um, divest from uh, banks, and starting with Wells Fargo, since uh, we've done that here in Seattle. I had no group, idea, by the way. By the way. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, that was amazing. not on purpose. That's amazing. The name of the group, by the way, is uh, Divest yourcity.org team. So divestyourcity.org. You can go there. And um, I I, uh, worked with other council members many, actually years ago, sponsoring legislation to make uh, the banks that we invest in um, follow certain guidelines. Um, Now, hold on, wait, stop there. Okay, so a city is investing money in banks. Seattle, for example, had $3 billion. Tell people what that means. What what okay, what money is being invested? Yes. Every city has a budget. Okay, every city needs some place to put the money that is part of the budget. In other words, when they collect revenue, they have to deposit it somewhere. And then, of course, they need a bank so that way, when they write a check, they write a check on the account and it goes out. Obviously, big cities have bigger budgets than smaller cities. Seattle has a budget of three point five billion dollars. We, by law, have to choose a uh, financial fiduciary to hold that money and there are limited number of of banks that can perform that function by state law we can't actually even use uh, credit unions because of uh, state restrictions Um, but and this is the strength that cities have and this is how you can impact a national issue wait 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 real quick why is there a restriction against credit unions just real quick Um, yeah there's a cap on it so you can do it only so much money for credit unions. And I think it's historically because credit unions were really smaller mm-hmm. and they may not have had as many financial restrictions on them or guidelines as do uh, other financial banks. So they literally and passed a law saying you can't, you, you couldn't split up the money by between limit, 10. By limit, exactly. There is one like that. Wow. Okay. And okay. 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 State, right. Yeah. So much of what cities do are literally restricted by states and it varies mm-hmm. from state to state. But in this particular instance, talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline, something that is in North Dakota, and it's something that someone in Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Tampa, wherever, Seattle, is like, well, you know, what do you do other than if you want to go out there and, and, you know, be part of the demonstration there and be there for a while or sign a letter to your Congress, congressional representative. However, every city does, and when I say invest, they retain their money in a bank. Some of these banks, Wells Fargo in particular, is one of the major financial backers of the financial of the, uh, the pipeline. Are so, they backers of the pipeline, or are they investors in ETP, which is Energy Transfer Partners? Yeah, actually both. They have uh, loans out. Um, but they're not okay. investing in... Their, their, their money is obviously facilitating the construction. Right. Um, they're not 
invested in the oil company. Because as a bank, actually, they don't do that. As a bank, they facilitate the use of money by different corporations. So they're, the the pipeline couldn't get built, obviously, if it didn't have financial backing. Right. Not yeah, so that's that's the context, right? Got it. As opposed to investing in the oil company, right? Right, um, right. Just to remind people, banks don't make money by holding your money. Banks only make money by loaning your money out to other people who repay it with interest. So right. the bank says, "Oh, we can loan money to energy transfer partners. They're going to use the money to build this pipeline. They're going to pay us back, and they'll pay us interest, and so we make profit." Right. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's how it works. All right. Perfect. And um, so what the Seattle City Council did on February 7th is unanimously, and the mayor, by the way, signed off on his agreement, Yay. passed an ordinance to terminate its you know, $3 billion relationship with Wells Fargo because of the past practices, because they have been in violation of federal laws and were fined, but also because they were funding the, the pipeline. Right. And now there's... Uh, a few days later, Davis, uh, California, cut its ties with Wells Fargo, as right. did uh, Santa Monica, and apparently Providence, Rhode Island is looking at it. Mm-hmm. And we've heard that now other cities are looking at it, just like, for instance, using another example of what you can do sometimes locally and have a ripple effect across the nation, right. is that when we passed our $15 minimum wage, which was the, the highest and the first city in the country to do that, other cities, Los Angeles, New York, uh, Pittsburgh, other cities began to follow along right. because they realized for the first time, I mean, some state, some cities can't because of state laws again, but those cities that can without those restrictions began to realize, oh, we could actually do this kind of thing. And the communities within those cities started to demand that they have a higher minimum wage. Right. So they obviously aren't all going to go 15, but um, I was just in uh, Georgia, uh, Athens, Georgia, and talking to people there, and I'll tell you how big an impact this makes in people's lives. Their minimum wage in Georgia is five dollars an hour, and that's oh. not and that's not the lowest in the nation either. Right. And wow. I was talking to young people who were working in the fast food industry, and I uh, and they said, "Do you mean to tell me that someone now working at McDonald's or Burger Chef uh, is earning fifteen dollars an hour, which is the case now?" I said, mm-hmm. "Yes," and they just like. You know, it was almost like the eyes opened up and they thought, this is what political power is. You can Mm -hmm. actually improve your life. You can actually earn enough money so you can, you know, rent a place or down the road, you know, be able to put money aside for education. It's a real thing. Um, And so with this uh, pipeline now, I think there's at least an effort and perhaps some success in getting um, a major bank. I think Wells Fargo is, is perhaps one of the best examples is to focus on one, one bank rather than all of them, um, to change its, its, um, its practices. And if we succeed, and I say we in the sense the, the, the movement to, to basically you know, stop uh, climate change and recognize right. the rights of the tribal, uh, uh, tribal uh, natives there, um, will be a, a tremendous success. But that's something you can do in each city. And, and right. to just make one final point, success of that strategy is not wishing that you had and sometimes sometimes we say wish we had more power wish we had more tools is taking a look at the tools that you do have yeah. and how to use them differently right that is the key to success absolutely absolutely there are some seriously underused tools out there 
almost as if a person can say to themselves, okay, especially if you live in an area where already a lot of people maybe are, are leaning that direction is, okay, this is great. Let's literally be the example. Because I think a lot of times uh, there's a person who might say, well, if we do it, that's great for us. But what about the rest of the country? Well, that's the point. Is it actually having good examples, whether it's a character in your favorite fictional novel or Rocky, you know, your favorite movie or yeah. whatever it is, sure. having yeah. these examples, have it, they inspire sometimes millions of people. So persevering at becoming a really positive example for other people is, um, is a brilliant goal. Well, um, I think basically in life, the best we can do is, is try to do the best that we can and with respecting other people. And um, if we have some success, hopefully other people will adopt those, those practices as well. So it's possible with all of these different, um, if, if, if cities start to do this, we have this, this mm-hmm. beginning idea, we have the first sort of pushback against what the moneyed interest through the banks are doing, how they're choosing mm-hmm. to spend our country's resources, if we look at it that way, on this mm-hmm. vast array of um, resource extraction um, pipelines that have been approved over the last few years by the previous administration. Right. Um, at the same time that they were approved, so we have we have all these pipelines that have been approved throughout the country. At the same time that that's happened over the past few years, a 40-year ban on exporting raw crude to other countries has been lifted. So Mm -hmm. we started out eight years ago with this idea of let's have energy independence. We'll use our own, you know, uh, fossil fuel resources and get out of the Middle East wars and whatnot. We'll have more um, sustainability as a nation economically, blah, blah, blah. And that was a really nice narrative really nice storyline, and that led to a lot of approvals of a lot of pipelines, maybe, you know, oiled the the gears a little bit to help that happen. And once those approvals were in place, we had that ban dropped, which a lot of people don't understand that we are very much at risk of of being the next continent that um, is resources extracted, basically. That's what's going on. Right. And um, so I just want to throw that out there for folks that may feel like this is just good for America because this is for our use. Unfortunately, um, the way ETP describes it, which is Energy Transfer Partners, is that they mm-hmm. call themselves, um, oh, what's that company that delivers packages? Um, starts hmm. with an F. Yeah, the Postal Service and the FedEx. Yeah, um, the uh-huh. the spokesperson for ETP described themselves as FedEx and said, we're not responsible for what happens with the oil that we transport. We just get it from point A to point B, and the people who own the oil, they decide what to do with it. So we have no guarantee whether it'll be used for domestic purposes or sold internationally. Right, right, right. So They're just a delivery. That's yeah. right. This is this is a big, giant you know resource extraction plan this, that we're undergoing in this country. But what, what I wanted to bring back to here is as these cities push back in this way, is it not an invitation to a huge, giant bank to decide to reshape itself as a green bank, a bank that is going to only invest in fabulous things that can take us into a sustainable future? If a lot of um, people are saying, all right, we're going to pull our money out and we need somewhere to put it, that's almost like a positive pressure to hopefully create 
a green bank? I mean, that is actually market dynamics. If you create an alternative that people feel that has value and can produce something, they will invest. I mean, for instance, solar power 20 years ago was stuck on the radar. Right. And now it, it's, it's providing, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's, it's a hundreds of times what it was before. And it's starting to be a significant portion of our overall energy source. Right. Um, and, you know, I had been working while I was on the city council to get our pension fund to divide, divest mm-hmm. from fossil fuels. was able to get the um, our pension retirement board to agree to at least uh, require our, our third-party uh, financial consultants to do reports on what was going on with the, uh, the fossil fuel industry My. and to participate in a uh, national association. Uh, monitoring that behavior. They, they haven't divested yet, but they have begun going down the road of at least collecting good data and recognizing that uh, many other, um, not city, but uh, foundations and colleges have started to divest in fossil fuels. For one thing, right. it it's actually saves their um, the people they're trying to serve, the pensioners, money. Um, in fact, uh, the city of Seattle, I think, has lost something like $65 million over the last 15 years from our investments in, in uh, fossil fuels. And Gates Foundation lost, from what I understand, $100 million or more uh, from their investments. So uh, one of the arguments about divesting from fossil fuels in the past has been um, fiduciary responsibility. And now we yeah. can show that um, fiduciary responsibility meaning that you have to make sure you don't follow a political objective that will hurt your your um, the people who are the beneficiaries. Right. I mean, the reality is, you know, when the average American citizen has some extra money they've saved up and they walk in to sit down and talk to an investment advisor and they mm-hmm. say, my child's ability to go to college is dependent upon me successfully investing this or my retirement, my survival, you know, where am I going to go? When that, that investment uh, advisor says... Um, well, you can go over here in the green area and you're going to earn back 5% or whatever, or you can go over here. It's maybe a little riskier, but you're looking at 15% yield over five years in the oil industry. The fact is that a lot of people are going to say, I love my kids. I want to survive my retirement. I'm going to have sure. to go where the, what we need is a strong, robust, um, you know, investment opportunity where it's green investment. I mean, ultimately we are all paying the money into the future and we're, we're creating and building our future. And so, yeah, the the way we can, it will be so nice. I think it's going to happen to watch the shift. Uh, did you see what Arnold Schwarzenegger put out a couple of days ago? No, I have not. I am going to share it with you on Facebook. So, um, it's brilliant. And anyone who wants to, um, everyone out there listening, just like Google, um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, I don't know, try to find what he wrote basically about why it's important to divest from fossil fuels and invest in new clean energy. And he did a brilliant wow. job of explaining. I was really, really impressed. I will send it to you on Facebook. Oh, I look forward to reading it. Yeah. So let's cover really quickly our goodbyes and make sure people know how to get a hold of you because that is super important. Um, For folks who are just catching the tail end of this, hi, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I have been interviewing Nick Licata, who was um, on the Seattle Council for a long time. You still live in Seattle, right? I live in Seattle now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you still do. Yeah, right? Okay. Yeah. Local mm-hmm. guy who wrote a wonderful book, a small, accessible book. Totally, um, this is like put it by your bedstand and a week or two later, you'll have read through the whole thing in little snippets. Um, Becoming a Citizen Activist. This is the book of the year. And we all need everybody to step up to the plate and engage in a way that makes it healthy for you and makes you feel like the stress you have gets converted into action. So um, what is it? Joan Baez has this. uh, My quote on my email is, um, action is the antidote to despair. Yes. Yes, I've seen that quote. It's a great yeah, quote. Yeah, yeah. All right, so how do people get a hold of you, Nick? Well, um, my website is uh, www.becomingacitizenactivist.org. And, and there are other cities who are taking up this mantra, and this is basically big banks talk in the language of money, and we are talking in the language of money and saying we don't want this type of an investment. And is there a, do you like people to contact you on Facebook, or what do you think? Oh, Facebook is fine. They would yes, just look you up Facebook. by name? Yeah, yeah. Or uh, actually my email, too, is nick at becomingacitizenactivist.org. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so that'd be great. I really appreciate you joining me on the show. Um, folks, if you missed it um, and you want to hear more, just go check it out online or catch it next weekend at 11 a.m. on 101.9 FM. Online, you can find my show at marchtwisdale.com or go straight to the voiceofvashon.org website. And um, you can check out other shows that the VOV um, radio station offers there as well. It's a great, great website. All right, Nick, thank you. Okay. Everyone, thanks for joining us today for another episode of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'm going to leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Come here, gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats could fall And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight 
They own it free of liability They own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices The view till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words do leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides. And from our gaze you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify. And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do Bidding of the many, not the few We are the many You are the few